I didn't inflate my lifestyle. Like I had a roommate. I live with my brother to save money. I kept my same car. I basically just all that extra money, I just funneled directly to savings and investments. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 88 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Eric Richard, the founder and host of Nomad on Fire, a podcast focused on the intersection of the digital nomad and FIRE, or Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. Now, Eric first heard about the concept of FIRE in 2015, and by July of 2019, achieved what is referred to in the space as Lean FIRE. And after achieving that, Eric decided to sell all his possessions and get rid of his apartment in order to live as a digital nomad. In this interview, Eric and I talked about what exactly FIRE is and how he was able to achieve it in just four years, earning a regular salary from his job when it takes most people decades to reach financial independence. We also discussed his experience living as a digital nomad and his advice for nomads who want to reach financial independence themselves. Before we jump into the episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite equivalent and leave us an honest review. If you're enjoying this podcast, it is the number one way to support us because reviews are still a key statistic that Apple looks at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So I just want to say thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. If you want to check out the full show notes and list of resources mentioned during this episode, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 88. That's episode all spelled out, followed by the number 88. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this wide-ranging conversation with Eric Richard. All right, Eric, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Mikko. Yeah, of course, dude. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Um, I love your uh, your podcast and your blog over at Nomad on Fire. So uh, I'm really happy to have you on here and talk about some nomading stuff and some fire stuff. So um, yeah, so to kind of um, jump off, you know, you have the podcast, um, you have a, a great blog. What made you want to like start the blog and the podcast in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I feel like I found like kind of the financial independence community first and just like read a bunch of blogs, listened to a bunch of podcasts, like made some like, I can say finding out about financial independence was like a significant like changing point in my life that I made some really positive financial decisions and really ramped up my savings rate, tried to avoid lifestyle inflation. So it had a positive impact on my life. And then kind of the, I feel the same way kind of about the digital nomad lifestyle. Like when I first kind of heard about the concept of the lifestyle and listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, I was like, oh, 
wow, like this is amazing. And then like, as I kind of followed both communities and different, you know, content creators in each of them, I was like, wow, there's so much overlap between these two communities that they fit so well together. Like I want to kind of try to bridge the gap between the communities and share some of those, I guess, best practices or ideas, right? So people trying to uh, achieve and that are pursuing financial independence, like have you considered geographic arbitrage as a strategy, right? If you move to a cheaper city in the US or if you move somewhere abroad, right, you could immediately maybe cut your living expenses in half, right? So that's probably like my message to that community. And then digital nomads, it's it's maybe a little bit different, but I think a lot of it kind of stems around like, hey, are you planning for the future, right? Like even if you're, you have your own business or you're freelancing, whatever you're doing, it's really successful right now and you're making a living, you're traveling the world, like life is great. Like what if, what if something happens that prevents you from doing that in the future, right? That could be anything like make sure you have those savings and those investments like set aside to kind of give yourself that cushion and, and kind of future proof you. I wanted to just combine them together for the blog and the podcast. And then honestly, I would say like, I, I like blogging, but like I started with zero audience or any following. So it was kind of, it, it's, it's weird, like blasting something out on the internet and then, you know, you're not getting any feedback. So I actually enjoyed doing the podcast personally, like way more because you get that social interaction up front and you get to bounce ideas and have, you know, cool conversations with awesome people. So it's just much more rewarding from that perspective. Yeah. You know, it's even in my opinion, even weirder than like blasting blogs into the like empty space is like recording a video on a camera and there's like nobody behind it and you feel so weird because you just <laughs> kind of say like, you know, you watch like a YouTube video and it seems like, you know, like if you're watching like a good YouTuber, a good like video creator, it kind of seems like seamless. But no, they've probably said it eight times. And like, I'm always thinking like, I wonder what my neighbors think I'm doing. You know what I mean? Because I live in an apartment. I'm like, they're probably like, this dude's like said the same thing like a hundred <laughs> times. You know what I mean? So I totally, I totally agree with you. It's like, it's this like very weird feeling. And um, I, I get the same feeling with like podcasts. Like for me, that's why I've been so much more consistent with podcasting is because it's almost like while the reward uh, of you creating content out there that can really help people is there you almost have immediate gratification the fact that you've just connected with somebody that's really interesting or somebody that you like really respect and, and is doing something really cool um i try to think of like recently i started thinking of blogging more as like journaling like more of like recording ideas and concepts that i want to like refer back to at some point and it gives me like a place to like like work on those ideas, if if you know what I mean. I know I know Naval, who I I just finished the book that Eric Jorgensen did on his tweet on his like um, tweet storms, and I know one of the things that he says is that he uses Twitter as like a, a way for him to like remember certain like little bits of information. Um, so yeah, but but anyways, um, yeah, I totally agree with you on the podcasting on the blogging. Um, it's interesting that you say, you know, that you kind of, you see overlap between the two communities. Because in my opinion, one of the things that I've always thought was, there's two kind of camps of digital nomads. There's ones that are like very entrepreneurial and that are like very go, go, go kind of, you know, 
trying to like get as much income as possible. And then there's another camp of digital nomads that are sort of like, they don't really care so much about money. They're much more focused on like lifestyle and they want to um, make just enough money in order to like, you know, just kind of like do whatever they want to do and be wherever they want to be at. So I've always kind of seen that there isn't a much of an overlap in at least that camp of digital nomads and the fire community. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I think... I guess the first camp that you mentioned kind of wanting to like crush it and make as much money as possible. I think maybe that community, there's not as much um, overlap between the fire community. Cause I feel like where the fire community kind of turns like traditional, like retirement and financial advice on its head is instead of basing like, Hey, this is how much you need invested off of what your salary or your income is. The fire community flips it and looks at, Hey, what are your, annual expenses and then you want to have you know the uh based off the four percent rule like you want to have 25 times your annual expenses saved up mm-hmm. right so if you want to spend 40k per year you know you would need a million invested that you know theoretically you could you could live off of that like in perpetuity for the rest of uh of your life where traditional like retirement or financial advice might say, oh, you need, it's based off your income. You need three to $5 million. I mean, a million dollars is still a lot of money, but it's a lot less than three to 5 million, right? I I think the most overlap I see is maybe in that second camp that you mentioned of digital nomads, like kind of the lifestyle design. I see both financial independence and digital nomads is just a way to create just another tool in your tool set of like a way to design your life to create a life with more freedom, with more meaning, that you're kind of living life on your own terms. Like a little, they're both a little bit like countercultural, maybe. Like I think maybe both communities are moving more into the mainstream, but I see them both as kind of like, hey, this is the traditional American dream. Oh, this is what, you know, you want to have a big house and you want to have a fancy car and, and these different things where I think both communities is kind of like, ah, eh, maybe that's not the most important thing. Like that's not what I want to focus my life on. I want to have control over my time. I want to have location independent control. And then I want to have control over my money so I can, you know, afford to spend my time however I want. Mm. What was your background? Like, I know that you said that you heard about, you know, fire first and then afterwards you kind of got involved in the digital nomad space, but what was your background? Like, what were you doing before all of these other things, before you got involved in all of this other stuff? Yeah. So I was kind of, uh, I was an operations manager. So I worked in like the warehousing and logistics, um, industry. I don't know, just kind of, you know, your average guy just went to school, got a job in the field that he studied and, and was just kind of working and had, you know, a basic kind of, uh, you know, career life. Um, but I, I like, I had, I had read the four hour work week, like, a like, back in college, actually, like a while ago, kind of right when it came out. So I'm sure somewhere like in the back of my head, I kind of always had these ideas of just like creating and designing a lifestyle that was more enjoyable than what I was doing in my job. And I had that, you know, time freedom and location freedom uh, that, you know, so many people dream of and want to pursue. And then I, 
I think, you know, conceptually, like I understood like, oh yeah, if you have, you know, if you have a lot of, a lot of money saved and invested, yeah, maybe work at that point then becomes optional. Or if you're the type of person that enjoys working, but you want it to be more passion driven or focused, then you could shift to, you know, starting a blog or a podcast, you know, doing whatever kind of excites you. Um, but that it didn't really crystallize until I kind of, I read this article just like randomly one day on Facebook, I was just scrolling through and it, it was some like kind of clickbaity ish title, but it was like intriguing enough that I, that I clicked on it and I read it and I was like, see how this, um, Canadian couple retired in their thirties and now they travel the world full time. And it wasn't like the stuff that they did was legit. Like they had great jobs as software developers. They had high incomes. And then instead of buying a house, you know, they just saved and invested that money. And then their, um, their portfolio became big enough that the passive income, you know, covered their annual expenses and, and now they travel the world. So when you read that article, how old were you and how long did it take for you to actually get to a point where you could, you know, actually like utilize fire? Because the way that I always think about it is that like, it's going to take a long time. Do you know what I mean? Like, even like when I sit down and do some like napkin math, you know, it's like, like 10 plus years that most people save up in order to like reach a retirement place, you know, at the minimum, but you're still a really young guy. So, you know, like how long did it take for you to reach that point? Yeah. So that's a great question. I'm actually really happy that you asked. I'm actually really happy that you asked me about that. Cause I was kind of, I was kind of thinking, Oh, he, he might ask me about this. So I think it took me a few years, right? Like I think, I think if you want to hit like traditional financial independence that like, okay, based off the 4% rule, you can have 25 times your annual expenses saved up. I mean, I don't know. It depends kind of where you're at in your personal finance situation to begin with. Right. And, the, and then it depends kind of what actions you take from there. Right. Personal finance is, is pretty basic. You want to either, you want to earn more money, you want to spend less money, and then you want to save and invest the difference. Right. So there's a lot of a lot of upside on the earn more side. And then there's, you know, depending on maybe what sacrifices or what changes you're able to make, uh, you can, you know, have some some cost savings. But I think for me, it it actually was a little bit quicker because like as soon as I found to answer your original question, sorry. So when I first found out about it, like just a few months later, I received a promotion at the job that I was doing at the time. And it was actually, it was like a pretty significant raise. And since I had just kind of consumed all this fire knowledge and I was like real pumped about it, like basically I didn't inflate my lifestyle at all. Right. So most people, if they got a significant increase in their income, they might be tempted to inflate their lifestyle. Right. Maybe they're driving a Ford right now, but they don't want a Ford anymore. They want a Mercedes or something. Right. Or maybe they, you know, just go on a chill inexpensive vacation, but they want to ball out and they want to drop 10 grand and go to Disney with their family or something this year. Right. So I didn't inflate my lifestyle. Like I had a roommate. I live with my brother to save money. I kept my same car. I basically just all that extra money. I just funneled directly to savings and investments. So I didn't, I did not hit my like original target financial independence number in terms of like, Oh, if I hit, what was that? Um, I had never really like mapped it out, but it was pretty, it was pretty high. Like I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to be more on like the fat fire side. So that would be 
Fat um, fire. Yeah, what yeah. Is, what is yeah. fat fire? So, so, so I think traditional fire is kind of the one million dollars. That's kind of the gauge. Like forty k per year. That's that's like a pretty good annual like amount to live off of. So lean fire is anything under a million dollars, usually between like 500,000 saved and invested in a million. And then fat fire is like usually anything over a million, like maybe towards two to 3 million. That's like traditional financial independence. Like if you have that in investments and then you're pulling off, you know, 4% per year, there's other ways to achieve financial independence, right? Either through a business entrepreneurship or real estate investments, right? I think real estate, I personally am not an expert in that, but I think if you have the right, if you have good success and you pick the right real estate investments, you can cash flow better, which might cover those annual, like monthly or annual expenses quicker than you, you'd be able to achieve that quicker than being able to like save up that nest egg where you sell off stock or the the dividends from the interest that you earn. Yeah, I think like uh if if I'm understanding correctly, the real estate play that you mentioned is similar to what I think a lot of people that are interested in passive income are trying to do. Like they try to generate enough of this income that's if not fully passive, like pretty um like pretty easy. Like you don't need to spend a ton of time doing it so that then you can make enough money to, you know, like live the lifestyle that you want to, and then kind of like go off to do whatever you want to do. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. It's the, like active yeah. retirement in a way. Like you're actively yeah. still making money, but you are in a sense retired. Yeah. Just in terms of, yeah, I guess in terms of like time spent, like if you have everything structured with the real estate, either you have a property manager or you just, you handle it yourself, but you have long-term tenants, mm-hmm. you have people that can do any of the maintenance or repairs on stuff. Like then it's, it's not active from a time perspective. So you could be anywhere in the world and you're still collecting rent right. checks. Yeah. So you were, okay. So you were pretty aggressive in terms of how much money you were investing, which helped you kind of like, like get to a fire, you know, place quicker, but like how, you know, for people who are maybe like very new to this topic or are not very familiar with fire, like, can you give us a number in terms of like how many years it took from you reading that blog post and, you know, getting the promotion to actually then going like, see, ya, I got enough money. I'm going to, you know, like retire. Uh, yeah. So, so three, three years, it took me three years from like, I read about it and then decided to quit my job and start the blog and the podcast and, and start traveling around the world. So I think three years is very fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, I like, I didn't achieve my, my target number. Like I talked about before in terms of like, Oh, this is enough money. Like I'm, I'm retired now. Like I'll never have to earn another dollar again in, in my life. But I had the savings and investments that like, I felt very comfortable, like not not working like even if i wasn't able to earn another dollar that i could travel around the world i could afford you know i could pay for everything myself and and i could take time off of working for you know at least the next like 3 to 5 years like very comfortably and it wouldn't like affect me so i think that's a gotcha. that's kind of a key point right i think it depends kind of where you're at on your personal finance journey. And I think there's a lot of like lessons to learn. If you're more interested in kind of the digital nomad, but like entrepreneurship piece, but you like have a job currently and it it, like, it's 
pretty decent. Like you make decent money. You're not like, it's not a terrible situation. I think like you can implement some of these principles and really start saving and investing, like putting that money away to give you more of a runway as an entrepreneur. So you like maybe feel more, more confident leaving your, your job to begin that new venture. Yeah. I think for people who are like, quote unquote, like regularly employed, uh, but are in a location independent job, it does give them the ability to like, for example, if you are a web developer and you're working in San Francisco, getting a San Francisco salary, but you're living in Chiang Mai, like you can really save some cash. Right. But the interesting thing that I've noticed is that companies are catching on to this. And I actually know of companies that adjust your pay based on where you are at the moment, which is really interesting because they're like, well, we know that you're not living in San Francisco, so we're not going to pay you, you know, 170 grand or whatever it is. We're going to pay you, you know, whatever, you know, a, a, a little bit more than what like a developer would get in like Thailand or whatever. So they're like, they're also catching on to this little trick. <laughs> 2000 2000 bot <laughs> yeah, yeah right it's like so you almost like do i want to make a little bit of money or should i go somewhere more expensive and make so but no i, I still think that they for sure pay you like a minimum amount of money but it's not like uh, i think companies are starting to catch on to this and especially as remote work now from covid becomes even more popular i think companies are going to find these margins that they can save cash on so if you are in a good job right now and you are location dependent, I would get somewhere cheap ASAP and at least like bank it until like all companies start figuring that out. Um, so what was your like transition like from, you know, a regular life, quote unquote, to a kind of more nomadic life? Because for me, the transition was actually really easy because I didn't have a normal life. I was a lifeguard. I was already a bum. So it was very easy for me to sort of like transition into being nomadic. While I think for people who have a more established lifestyle where you had a job, you had a 401k, you had health insurance, you had all these things, it can be a bit more difficult. So what was your sort of, you know, movement into that? And like, what were some of the struggles that you experienced? Yeah, great question. So yeah, I mean, I had a lot of changes, like kind of all at one time. Like I had quit my job, I started the blog and the podcast, like had been work like as kind of my full time venture that I'm working on. And then I became like nomadic and, and started traveling all within the span of like a month. So it was a lot of a lot of changes at once, to say the least. I mean, I would say my transition into the nomadic lifestyle was was very easy. Like I first started traveling as a digital nomad with remote year. So I kind of had a built in like community of people to hang out with, travel with, and um, just to have that network and the logistics taken care of, like that transition to being nomadic was super easy. The one thing in terms of, um, I guess one of the struggles that I kind of didn't anticipate that is like definitely something to keep in mind. Um, I, bl I blamed, a, I blamed a lot of things that I wasn't happy with maybe in my life on my job, right? Like, Oh, I work shitty hours. I work long hours. I have a long commute. I can't hang out with my friends as much because of my job. Oh, I want to start this blog and this podcast, but I don't have time. It's because of my job. Oh, I'm only working out three days a week. It's because of my job and my busy schedule. And then guess what? I didn't have a job anymore. And I still wasn't maybe achieving all of my goals that I set for myself. So it kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a punch to the stomach of like, Hey, you, you know, you got to take ownership of your life. Like 
you know, maybe my job was affecting some of these things, but now that I don't have one and I have all the time that I, you know, theoretically should be able to accomplish all of my goals and get everything done during the day that I want to, and I'm still not achieving some of these things. So that was kind of a wake up call. And that definitely took me a little bit to kind of get into that cadence of like having, having a good day and in the sense of like being productive in terms of like working on stuff, physically active, and then still like enjoying myself and like taking time to read a book or just, you know, chill, watch Netflix or spend time with, with friends. I think that has something to do with like structure because I experienced that as well, where you go from working a job where you have some type of structure into your day, right? Like you need to go to work from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., for example. So if you're going to work on something else, it needs to fit around that structure. And when you become, you know, nomadic or you are in a position where you can kind of like make your schedule, these sort of structures are sort of like float away and you find yourself like, um, like things taking longer than they should. Like for like you kind of like relax and, you know, like for example, I started finding it more like more difficult to find time to work on my own projects versus when I was a lifeguard because I was like, listen, I clock out at 3 p.m. and from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. it's all me, right? While like when you're when those sort of lines blur, it can be a little bit more difficult to have these like protected times. And you need to like, it, it's a muscle that you almost need to develop of like being a lot more, um, it's actually something that I was just thinking about and um, like writing about is like, you need to become a lot more like, like serious and you need to have way more self-control if that makes sense. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say like remote year was also like, it was really fun and it was a great experience, but I think I'm, I'm usually more of like a structured kind of like regimented person in like my day-to-day life. So I think I actually enjoyed, they're different. So I don't want to say like, oh, I enjoy traveling not on remote year more than I did. But I think in terms of like balance and personal productivity standpoint, when it was like, just my girlfriend and I traveling throughout Southeast Asia, I kind of actually enjoyed that more because I got into just like a much healthier balance. Like I wake up, get a great workout in at the gym, go to the co-working space, like work on blog podcast stuff for a little while. But then Chiang Mai is a remote year city. So there was still like a whole group of people there that I could go out at night and like be social, grab dinner, go to a movie, grab a beer or something. Like it was just much better from like a balanced perspective. And I think maybe part of that was the situation. And then part of me was just like getting more used to kind of that freedom and then creating a good structure around it. Well, I think it's the same with like having a lot of friends that are also nomadic with you because it's like, I mean, when we were in Merida in Mexico um, in like January, February, we had tons of friends there. So I'd get texts at like, 2 p.m. in the afternoon, like, hey, you want to go grab beer? And I'm like, yeah, I do want to go grab beer. But it's like, you know, you can't, like, there's like work and like stuff needs to get done. And so it's easy, like, when I'm back, you know, in the US because none of my friends can go get a beer at 2 p.m., which is kind of sad because you want that. But at the same time, it makes it a lot easier to be like, no, I'm working. You know what I mean? So, like, we'll, we'll grab a beer at five. So, you did mention that you traveled with your girlfriend, which is I know something that um, you know you and I have in common is that we have been traveling with significant others. What was your experience with 
convincing or, you know, telling your girlfriend and like getting her to kind of buy in on this plan to go travel the world with you? So she is actually a pretty extensive traveler. Um, she like backpacked Europe, like solo, like by herself. She did a, she lived in like a rural village in Tanzania for like a, um, like an internship kind of thing. Um, she did uh, study abroad to like Australia. So she actually had traveled like way more than me. So I think she, she was pretty keen on the, on the digital nomad lifestyle. So it didn't take me uh, too much convincing. It was a little bit more like difficult for her in terms of like the remote uh, job perspective. That's a, that's a story from, from another day. It was a little bit easier for me because I just like, you know, left my job and, and started traveling. Um, but in terms of convincing, she like, like we really were on the same page in terms of living this lifestyle. So it didn't take a whole lot of convincing. Yeah. I had a, I had a similar experience where, and I think it was easier for us because we were both so young and sort of getting started with our career. So there was like nothing to lose in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like we mm -hmm. were broke anyways, so we might as well be broke on the road. In a, do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. I can imagine it being way more difficult if you have an established career and you feel like you're almost taking a step back um, in order to go remote uh, and in order to start traveling, even if in the, in the long term, uh, you know, there's a lot more benefits to it. So I want to talk a little bit to kind of circle back around into the fire kind of uh, conversation. One of the things that I struggle with when it comes to investing money in the stock market in order to reach some sort of like retire early situation is that I need to take money out of my business to invest into the stock market. And there's an interesting conversation there going on within the entrepreneur community where essentially the stance that a lot of entrepreneurs take is that the returns they would get are a lot higher if that money goes into their business as opposed to the stock market. What do you think about that? Is there something that you think maybe like people who are hardcore entrepreneurs are missing out uh, in that sort of viewpoint? Uh, or do you think there's a way to marry the two? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. And it's something I've asked a lot of like entrepreneurs when I talk to them. I personally, like, I'm not like, you know, the world's most impressive entrepreneur. Like I've never like grown a, an awesome business and, you know, made a ton of money from it. Like I come from the more like traditional W-2 like job employment background. I mean, I think there's a way to combine them, right? And I think like, okay, you, if, say you get, you know, a good year, maybe you get between, I don't know, eight to 10% return in, in the stock market, or maybe you're just a stellar investor and you get 20% return, but then it, in your business, like you could double it, right? You could get, you could get a hundred percent return. Right. So I think there is so much upside. It really depends what business you're in and, and what kind of success you're seeing. I think the only thing to keep in mind there is like, what if something happens in the market? Right. Like the, you know, don't put all your eggs into one basket. Right. You could be crushing it right now, making, you know, tons of money. I don't know, 10, 20K per month. Your business is just killing it. But then something like COVID happens. Right. And your supplier that you were using is in China and there's like a four month delay now on getting your shipment from China, the U S I don't know. I'm just, you know, kind of spitballing here on, on examples. So I think, yeah, like if, if you're seeing success in your business, like you could probably get way better returns in that 
depending on, on what it is versus the stock market. But I think it's just something to keep in mind in terms of having diversification in your portfolio and like all of your money isn't tied up in that business just in case something, some sort of catastrophe happens and then it, it messes it up. Right. Yeah. I think especially like when you're getting started, like if you're just starting your business, it makes a lot of sense to take all of your money and put it into your business and not put it into the stock market. Right. Because like, you like that's the place where you stand to make the most returns like maybe three four years in when your business is now essentially generating you a nice salary then take out of money out of your salary and put it into the stock market but uh like i know there's like people that are like trying to do both like they're just starting trying to start a business but they've read all this fire stuff and they're like oh i need to be investing in there as well and i'm like you're splitting your like focus way too much like the the 50 bucks a month that you're putting into the stock market is not going to do anything. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to retire with that. <laughs> the, the, the personal, I, I like to always joke and say like the personal and personal finance, like that word personal is like a very key component of that, right? It really depends on your situation. Yeah. Like if you're just starting your business, you're seeing great success. It probably makes a lot more sense to just pour that money back into the business so you can continue to grow it and continue to see your returns. If it's a little bit more established, then you want to diversify a little bit more, then that probably makes more sense. When you transitioned from, you know, kind of like a regular life back home to then becoming nomadic, uh, you were obviously, I'm assuming, very into budgeting and you kind of knew exactly how much you were spending on different things. Did you find that your expenses increased when you retired and went nomadic, because like one of the things that I experienced was all of a sudden I had all this extra time that I could fill with like spending money on things. Did you like ever experience that? Um, kind of going right into remote year. Like I had, I had budgeted more for that kind of like those few months that I, I traveled with that program. Cause I knew it was going to be more expensive. So like there is a discount for couples, but both my girlfriend and I were like paying for that and then paying for everything else, like on top of it in terms of like food or, you know, different side trip or, you know, have a bunch of friends around going out for drinks or, you know, doing something fun. So like the first few months of my travels, I, I like I spent, <laughs> I spent a lot, but in more than I wanted to, but it was like, it was pretty much in line with where I thought I would be. And then kind of when I went into the just traveling with with Kelsey and I, like it, you know, the expenses toned down a lot and it was at a, a much more sustainable level. Yeah, it's interesting because like what we kind of noticed was we were living in cheaper locations. Like when we were in like Bulgaria, for example, um, we tend to spend a lot more like units of money, if that makes sense, because we have more free time. We go to do more things. There's a higher quality of life, but the expenses tend to be lower, if that makes sense, like when you compare them to like just living in the US. So in the US, maybe we went out to dinner once a week and in Bulgaria, we're going out to dinner and lunch every single day, but the actual expense it was lower in terms of dollars. Um, so that goes kind of goes back to that geo arbitrage bit. Like I do, I do have a budget, right. And I kind of have a plan for like how much I'm going to spend and how much I'm willing to spend. Like in the back of my mind, like I'll, I'll write it down on a spreadsheet, but then in the back of my mind, I'll kind of have it. But like day to day, I don't want to have that. I don't want to like be there to buy something or like go out to a meal and have that worry of like, Oh, 
shoot, is this going to put me over my budget? And I think that's where like geo arbitrage is so powerful because some places it's literally a a non-concern. Like in Chiang Mai, spent like $1,800 for the month, which depending on who you talk to, that's like really low for Chiang Mai or it's in the middle or maybe that's on the really high side. Like you could definitely, (laughs) you could definitely get by for way less than 1800, but that was perfect for me. Cause like I went out to dinner or meals, like whenever I wanted, if I wanted to buy a t-shirt or something, or I wanted to go to a movie or I wanted to go get drinks with friends. Like if I wanted something, I didn't think about it. Like I just spent the money and I did it. And like 1800, that's just kind of where like the chips fell. I didn't, I wasn't trying to get to that number. Um, but I also wasn't like restraining myself and I literally bought anything I wanted and it came out to 1800 and which, which is awesome. Like I, if I could, if I could spend 1800 every month, like that'd be perfect. I think that's where Ramit Sethi has uh, his idea of money dials, I think falls in really nicely because essentially what he's saying is like his money dials are like um, your areas of expense where you love it and you're really passionate about it. So like, don't worry about money in that point, but in the things that maybe you're not so interested in there be kind of very like specific with what you spend. So like, if you like love food, turn that money dial up to 10, go to restaurants, don't care how much you spend, but then like don't spend money on clothes or your car or your rent, you know, these sort of things. Yeah. I, I, I love that book. I like, that's kind of right when I, right when I like started earning money, I read that book and that was kind of a good, a very good base layer. Like I think I will teach you to be rich by Ramit Sethi should be like (laughs) required worst title of a book, but (laughs) phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, The, yeah. The title like does not, match what the book is about because it's just about like basic personal finance concepts it's not about like getting rich and making a ton of money but i do love his system like i think that should like everyone should read that book for basic kind of personal finance knowledge and then i would say the fire movement kind of just like adds not more extreme but just like more detail and just kind of extra levels onto that and kind of challenging yourself to like further reduce your expenses or like what can you do on the income side to to earn more money and yeah i think the dials is yeah like i totally agree i think that's spot on because a lot of times like you you can't you can't buy everything right but there's some things like if you really you know if you really analyze it and you're like is this like is this purchase bringing me closer closer to or further away from my ideal life, right? Like that's kind of the only question it needs to answer, right? If you want to be a digital nomad, you want to travel around the world, like is a $400 pair of shoes like bringing you closer to that goal? I mean, maybe it is for you. And and if it is like, go for it, right? But I would say like, you probably don't need that if, if you're traveling around, right? So that can be, you can skip that purchase and that can go into your, your savings and investments. Yeah, I think also as a nomad, like when you are moving around from place to place, you don't have so many things to spend money on. Like when I'm like living in Cincinnati, I tend to spend a lot more money on like like clothes or like these things while otherwise I'm like, well, I have a backpack and like I, there's nowhere <laughs> to put this thing. Do you know what I mean? So like you almost like don't like shop for these things. So in a way, like even though you like, 
being nomadic can seem from the outside as a more expensive life because you're taking flights all the time and maybe you're going out to eat and doing these things more. In reality, you're saving a ton of money on a whole bunch of other sort of um, topics or not topics. What's the word here? Like like things in your expense categories. Sort of yeah, <laughs> categories. Yeah. In in terms of categories, uh, that kind of got me thinking. Do you have any tools that you use that you're a fan of that you can recommend for like budgeting um, or kind of like managing your finances? Yeah. So uh, personal capital is a big one. That's really popular. T- popular tool for seeing just like your overall assets and liabilities, right? So you can see all of like your bank accounts, you can see all of your investments, and then you can see like any liabilities in there as well. So that can give you like a good accurate picture of, you know, what your net worth is and kind of where you're at from a financial perspective. Um, that does, that does budgeting as well. So you can kind of see cash flow and like how much money is coming in, how much you're, um, how much you're spending. Uh, Mint, I mean, does the same thing. You probably you probably don't need both. You could probably get away with just uh, personal capital. I, I like using that one more. Um, Have you ever heard of um, the podcast Listen Money Matters? I don't think so. So it's uh, it's it's one of the it's not running anymore, but when it used to, uh, that was a constant like thing that they like fought about was like personal capital versus mint was like the, the like one person <laughs> really liked personal capital, the other one really liked mint. There was this constant like like they switched every like three months, you know, it's like one or the other. So that's I've never used personal capital, but I always made me laugh. <laughs> what about like um investments like where do you like obviously you know you're not like a credited investor (laughs) like you know but in terms of like your personal experience where do you like to kind of like run and manage your investments through do you have any sort of like tips on things people should invest in like funds people should invest in versus not invest in just based on your personal experience yeah so i I appreciate that you mentioned that yeah i'm definitely not like a a fiduciary like financial advisor, but just in like my own personal, I can share like what I've done personally that has, has worked mm-hmm. well. Like if, you know, if you have a, a W2 job and, and you can like contribute to a 401k, like you want to take advantage of like for the longer term, like tax advantaged um, accounts, like a 401k or IRA, right? Cause then you can, um, you know, deduct those contributions when you file your taxes. Um, I, I personally am like a very lazy investor. And I think kind of the general consensus in like the fire movement, like as a whole is like over the long term, like no one beats the market. So there's a lot of just recommend recommending like just very boring, low cost index funds. So it literally just follows the markets, but the, um, you know, fees like expenses of those funds are very cheap. Um, I, I personally, like, I, d- I don't do a lot of research. Like I said, I'm kind of like, not to say that like what you're investing in and like your asset allocation isn't important. It is very important. Like your asset allocation is like one of the top contributors to like what kind of returns that you're going to get, like what you're invested in. But I think a lot more focus should be kind of put on like kind of the front side of that, like the automation and like seeing where you can cut, seeing what you could do in terms of like a side hustle or on the earning side, and then just automating it. So it automatically gets put in there. Like I used, um, Wealthfront 
there's there's a couple of different like robo advisors or robo investors. So Wealthfront and Betterment are two of the big ones. I personally use Wealthfront and liked it, like had good success, good returns with it. I crank I'm a pretty risky inv- investor, like it doesn't it does it doesn't bother me to see huge swings, right? Because I know that I'm investing for the long term. So like oh, there's a crazy day and the stock market goes up 20%. Like, you know, that doesn't, like, that doesn't affect me. Like, unless I was going to sell something that day, like it doesn't matter. Right. Or same thing. If there's a huge drop in the market, like, okay, I lost a bunch of money on paper. Same thing. Like that's not going to bother me. Right. Because until you sell that, you're not going to realize like that gain or loss. So I just, (laughs) I'll throw it. Like you can set kind of your risk tolerance and I just set it to like, the most risky that you can set it to on Wealthfront. And just, you know, I focused on contributing like the same amount every month and then like challenge myself like, oh, I'm contributing X amount. Like, can I contribute another hundred dollars and like try to keep ramping it up month, uh, month over month. And like, you know, being like younger, I have that time horizon that I'd rather be in, in riskier investments to be able to like, realize higher higher gains in the long term. Yeah, it's like I think a lot of people spend too much time like thinking like trying to pick their options. I think that like in our world we have so many options and we have so many choices to choose from while sometimes like the best choice is like just pick one, you know, whether you choose Wealthfront or Betterment or whatever, just pick one and just go with it and that's going to be better than you kind of like like trying to figure out which one to pick for like six months and not doing anything just because you're confused. Um, but with that being said, I am curious because I have looked at both Wealthfront and Betterment and been like, you know, like, I don't know. Why did you choose Why did you choose Wealthfront over Betterment? Or was it just like the first ad that popped up was for Wealthfront, so I went with them? Or was there like a, a, a an actual reason in your research why you went with them? Honestly, it was... It was um... Like it was a few years ago, so I don't speci- like I remember doing some research, but I don't specifically remember why I chose um, Wealthfront over Betterment. It it probably was not like a, a very important reason. Like it literally could have been as simple as like, oh, I like the UI of their site mm-hmm. better or something. I, I remember them being pretty similar from a fee perspective. I. I I don't know what the difference is now. Potentially when I signed up, their fee structure could have been a little bit differently or like maybe Betterment, you needed more money initially to invest. And I only had like 500 or $1,000 to put yeah. into it. So I went with the one that like I could put less money into. I, I forget specifically what it was. And is that still your main way of investing money or have you moved away from like robo advisors and do like your own investments? Um, I mean, sometimes like, you know, maybe, I don't know, five to 10%, like, like sometimes I'll buy individual stocks, but it's like a very small percentage of my, um, like total portfolio. Yeah. For, for for me, it's, (laughs) for me, it's kind of just like, getting the money in there. Like I don't, I don't enjoy researching stocks. I really like there's, um, I think, you know, Ramit talks about it in the book. Like there's life cycle funds, like there's very, or, or, you know, any just index fund, like there's very easy ways to get invested and kind of what you were talking about before, like 
definitely don't get bogged down in like analysis paralysis. Like just mm-hmm. pick like a, a very boring, safe investment, but then like be consistent with it. Like set up an automatic withdrawal and keep doing it every month and like then see where you can reduce your expenses and maybe you can start investing more every month and kind of challenging yourself in that way. What are your thoughts about, this is a very digital nomad friendly topic, but um, what are your thoughts on like cryptocurrency? Have you looked into it? Are you invested in it? Like, where do you stand on that conversation? Because I know there's like a lot of like investors who like love cryptocurrency and think it's the next big thing. And that like, if you're out of it, you're an idiot. But then there's a lot of people that are that are on the complete opposite side where they they totally don't believe in it. They don't think it's a good place to put money. What do you think about it? I personally have not done that much research into crypto. I, I personally don't own any crypto. I think I, I'm, you know, I, maybe I didn't, but I feel like I missed the boat, right? You know, a few years ago, you could have bought Bitcoin for whatever it was, right? Like, I don't, it was only a few dollars and went to like, what, 17 grand or something like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't put to, I'm not an expert, so I'm probably, I'm not the best person to ask about this. I personally have never invested in that. I have like heard of some of the upsides of it. And I think those make sense. Like I, I do kind of like the decentralization of it. Um, but it's, but then kind of on the flip side of that, right. Is it's not as, as tangible, right? Like, like a stock. Okay. I'm owning a share in this company. I, you know, if I buy a share of Apple, like I have my iPhone over here, like I, I know that they're producing products and like they have value and like a lot of people are, you know, they're making a lot of money because a lot of people are using their products and services. So I can see where people are like, oh, that doesn't feel, it's not as, it's not as tangible, right? But then there's other people that are like, oh, I love it because it is decentralized and, you know, no a government's not going to control it or, you know, influence the markets. Like it's totally. So yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert, but personally I don't own any cryptocurrency. I have a friend that um, is involved in like the startup space. And he was telling me that when crypto first came out and it was like really cheap, he was like, yeah, I don't really know what this is. I don't get it. But like people told me about it. So like, yeah, I'm going to throw like a couple hundred bucks into it and like, you know, whatever. And uh, he lost the USB drive that had the like Bitcoin on it. And I think he said he bought like five or 10 Bitcoins and said like he was just absolutely killing himself when it hit like 17 grand or whatever it was because he's like he can't find his USB stick that he knows he's got like over 100 grand in. (laughs) So I was just always he was telling me that and I was like. I I don't know what I'll do with myself. I would probably like, you know, just like absolutely lose my mind. So, Um, but sort of in wrapping up, man, um, what are some resources that you can recommend to people check out if they're interested in like the, um, you know, financial independence, retire early movement? Um, Obviously, um, you know, where can people find your blog and, and your podcast, but also what are some of the resources that you would recommend to people that you have found helpful yourself? Yeah, for sure. There's a bunch of bunch of great resources out there. If anyone wants to connect with me, look up Nomad on Fire for the blog and the podcast. Uh, probably most active on Instagram. You know, shoot me a DM. Oh, financial independence resources. Wow, there's a bunch of great blogs and podcasts. Um, some of my favorite podcasts. Um, Choose FI is a really popular show. That's probably the most 
popular financial independence show. Um, Fire Drill podcast is another good one. Um, I, I was on an episode of that. That's a real. That's also a really good. It's a good show. Um, the Mad Scientist. He doesn't publish too often, but that's like one. Like every time he publishes an episode, that's like I'm moving it to the top of my like podcast playlist because I'm like. I just love the stuff that he puts out. He has some great resources on his blog as well. Ooh, what else? Um, Mr. Money Mustache is probably one of the most popular financial independence blogs. I really like that one. That's probably one of the first ones that I dug into. Um, Millennial Revolution, um, Christy and Bryce and Millennial Revolution. That's another great blog. Um, Mr. Free at 33. I really like that. That's a good blog. He like the financial title. It is. That's good. He achieved financial independence, then moved to uh, to Thailand. He lives in in Chiang Mai. Um, I I got to to chat with him when when I was there. Um, yeah, just yeah. Search financial independence. There's a lot of like really smart people in the space, and and a lot of great information out there. Like just reading blogs or listening to podcasts. It's like you know a lot of it's all free. Cool, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. Um, kind of, you know, last uh, question. What is the, you know, like, what can people expect if they want to come in and listen to the podcast and read the blog? What can people expect, um, you know, in the future from there? Yeah, great question. Yeah, come check it out. Um, I mean, this kind of first season of the podcast is has mostly been Digital Nomad, but I do have some people that kind of are in both categories. Um, sorry, I forgot. I forgot one. Nomad Numbers is also a great resource um, for both kind of over, overlapping of like digital nomad and uh, financial independence. Um, this first season has mostly been like kind of travelers and digital nomad related stories. I kind of wanted to share like just digital nomad stories and show that it's like possible, like no matter what your background is, like entrepreneurs, freelancers, people with full-time jobs, people that are are financially independent. Like if you want this lifestyle, you can make find a way to make it happen. I think for season two, I think next year I'm going to do season two. I think I'm going to shift and focus a little bit more on the financial independence. I kind of want to get very granular on some of the finance topics where this first season, I didn't get to, a chance to dig into that as much. So keep an eye out for that in the future. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Mitko, this has been a blast. Thanks a lot, man.